Friends, we are into week three of our series on the book of Genesis. We're still not out of the first couple of chapters. It's a profound book with so many deep, wonderful truths that apply to our lives in the here and the now. In week one, we learned how God created the heavens and the earth, that he spoke them into being. We learned that there is a designer, a creator, a master architect who planned the world, who, who actually thought about it and, and planned it. We're not random cosmic flukes. Uh, we learnt about the, uh, about the wonderful creation of, of the earth. And, and, and last week we learnt about how God created mankind in his image, how we are, he's very, the pinnacle of his creation. And, uh, and today we're going to be looking at the sections of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 where he placed them in a garden. He, he created man uh, in his own image, he created male and female, he created them, and he, he's placed them in a garden uh, to tend uh, to that garden, to, to rule over it. Uh, I am a bit of a, I'm a keen environmentalist. Uh, I consider myself a, 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 bit of a, a bit of a greenie, a bit of a, a closet greenie. I love getting out into creation. Does anybody else love getting out into creation? I love a good bushwalk. Uh, that really is what floats my boat as well as being here amongst my church family, the way I really connect with God is, is out in the wonder of, of creation. I'm a keen a bird fancier. I'm a keen twitcher. I love Australian native birds. Ever since I was a little fella, I love spotting the wedgetail eagles overhead. And uh, I've learned to, uh, to tick some of those little uh, those birds off my list. When we were living down the south coast, we were home to one of the rarest birds in the world, uh, the, uh, the ground parrot. Never saw it, unfortunately. Uh, I never got to spot it. Extremely rare bird. Um, but I have other favorites. Uh, I'm not sure about you, but I love the uh, gang gang cockatoo. The, uh, the major Mitchell cockatoo. Has anyone seen a major Mitchell in the wild? I haven't. Have you? Fantastic. Beautiful bird. Uh, and I've since learned that there is a bird in the Philippines that I'm keen to see called the Philippine monkey eagle. It is an extraordinarily huge bird with a magnificent headdress, like a crest, and it flies in between the trees of the rainforest and plucks monkeys uh, out of the tree. Sadly, sadly, uh, this, this magnificent bird is, is endangered. It is suffering from all sorts of habitat destruction. So this magnificent bird that I've only seen through the TV that I hope one day to spot with my own eyes, I'm not sure that that I will make it, such as the extent to which we human beings have not done a good job of caring uh, for the earth as we are commanded to in today's Bible reading. Can I have a, these up on the screen and we'll get stuck into our readings today. So firstly, a couple of passages. It's a bit of a difficult one. I'm going to select the passages from Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 says, verse 26 to 31, says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature 
that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that, is, that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Then in Genesis uh, chapter 2, we get a deeper uh, description of the creation. Now we get a, a second description of the creation narrative. And a few verses from Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, and then 15, when we're concentrating in on our call to care for the environment. Uh, they say this. Thanks, Tina. Genesis 2. I knew I should have just put it in my little friendly iPad here. No. Yeah, two to, uh, 5 to 8. Uh, yep, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east. Thank you, Susan, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. Uh, thank you so much. And then verse 15 has another little uh, command to us. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to what? Take care of it. Friends, let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are weighty responsibilities you've given us. We come before you and we sing your praises for the wonder of creation this morning. And we acknowledge, Father, that we have a special place within it. We come before you and we seek greater understanding as to how to best be wise stewards of what you've given us. Help us to learn how to tend the garden in which you have placed us. Help us to see that this is your creation, this is your house, that we are guests here. So open our eyes this morning, we pray, Lord. We pray that my words might be your words this morning. We pray that I might decrease and you increase in all that is said and in all that is heard. All the people said, Amen. Now, in some respects, I think the church, we the church, need to be honest with ourselves and admit that we haven't always done a terribly good job. Uh, of caring for the earth. We have struggled at times to come to grips with the creation story in terms of how it speaks to our need to look after the earth here today. The temptation for we Christians has always been to sort of look to the end time, to look to Revelation and see the, 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 the earth being burned up or the earth being trashed and simply assume that it's going to go to rack and ruin anyway, so God is going to then just miraculously uh, you know, reconstruct it or regenerate it at Christ's return. So why don't we uh, just use it for whatever we, can get, whatever we can out of it in the here and now? But the term eco-theology uh, is now a legitimate part of informing how we live as followers of Jesus. 
Remember this word theology means God talk from two Greek words, theos and logos. Theos meaning God and logos meaning word or message. And so when we study theology, we're just really studying God talk, right? And then uh, when we put eco in front of it, our eco-theology, we are dealing with the God talk that deals with ecology, that centers around creation care but how we might respond to the environmental challenges of our day. Now, eco-theology is a relatively new uh, term in, in theological circles, but it really just reminds us of these ancient truths. It reminds us of the elements of our faith that have always been there since the time of Genesis. And to help us understand this further, I think it's worth spending a moment on the origins of the eco part of the term eco-theology. Here's an interesting little piece of information that I found interesting, and I, and I hope you do too. You see, both the words ecology and economics come from the same root word, the same Greek word. It's oikos. And it means household or home or a family unit. So economics, that is what we understand to be the discipline of money and markets, how they work, rests at its core on what makes households thrive. The term economics comes from how a household goes about managing its business and its, and its money. Uh, we've seen the link very clearly, haven't we, over these past couple of years when sort of the, the world economics have struggled and have some places ground to a halt as a result of of coronavirus, and, and as a result, individual households have, have started to, to struggle. And in turn, these economic troubles have been excuses to put off action in protecting the environment with the claim that the economy has to take priority over the ecology. However, I want to suggest to us this morning that the economy and ecology, well, they share the same root word, and so therefore I think they are tied together. Whilst economics concerns household budgets, ecology concerns our planetary households. Households need money, but they also need a healthy environment in order to thrive. And so I want to suggest this morning that these two important forces in determining your household's well-being, economics and ecology, are not opposed to each other, but are in fact both parts of maintaining a well-managed and a sustainable home here on earth. What do you think? Let's get into it and have a look. I want you to think too that there's also a little name in this, little clue in this name, eco-theology, in that it's, it actually describes God's household. Um, eco meaning house or household and theos meaning God. We're talking about God's house. This is God's house. We heard in week one of our series in Genesis uh, that God is the author of life. And as an author, he therefore has certain rights uh, to it. It's, it's his property. He created it in the same way that an, that an artist would write a song or create a piece of work. It is theirs. So to the earth is God's. He made the rules. He knows how it works best. Let's have a look at Genesis, you dig into, Gener dig into Genesis and a few other eco-theology passages and see what light they can shed 
on the call to care for our earthly household. Now, as we read in Genesis, towards the end of Genesis chapter 1, we see God creating humans in his own image in order that they might rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the livestock, and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground in verse 26. And then in verse 28 of chapter 1, uh, he, God blesses them and commands them to be fruitful, to increase in number, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. And again, to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. He gives them every seed-bearing plant for food. He calls it good. Now, what I want us to see is that this language of ruling over and subduing is the language that describes a, a viceroy or a, a representative of a king. Thus, we are God's representatives here on earth. So just let that sink in for a moment. Being a viceroy or being a representative of the king comes with some pretty weighty responsibilities, doesn't it? So let me ask you today, how have you been acting as a viceroy of late? How have you been representing, representing the king to the earth lately? Now, Since this world, this universe is God's house, I think we do well to remember that we are his guests in it. Uh, later on in the New Testament, in the book of Moses, in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, Moses uh, writes, to the, he says through Moses, uh, to the Lord God belong the heavens, the earth, and everything in it. And later on in Leviticus, in chapter 25, God declares the land is mine. You reside in my land, he says, as foreigners and as guests. And in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2 describes Christ's followers as strangers and as exiles. We are strangers in a strange land. It reminds me of an old a gospel song. This world is not my home. I am but passing through. Any of you familiar with that old one? This world is not my home. I am but passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Angels beckon me through heaven's open door, but I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Christian, you are here by invitation only. Don't get too comfortable here. Don't get too blasé about your place here on this earth. God makes us welcome to be sure, and he gives us a, a prized place, a special place as his representatives here on the earth. But we have, we have no right to be here by, by rights. So whilst God places us here with a job to rule over creation, the earth is not ours to use and to abuse as we see fit. We are guests here by God's invitation. We have an honoured place, but we need to recognise that we share our earthly home with every other living creature. And this sharing runs deep. Uh, here in Genesis chapter 1, we learn that, that we uh, humans emerge on the same sixth day of creation as every other land animal. From the tiniest insect to the giant blue whale, we came about on the same day of creation. There's no separate day of creation for mankind. Have you realised that? Even our gender, the way, part of the way in which we represent God, male and female, is of course shared with the animal world. 
And when we get to Genesis 2, we see in greater imagery, in greater detail about the, the, the kinship that we share with the earth and the animals that live on it. We read that God formed man from the dust of the ground and he places man in a garden and commands him to work it and to take care of it. God's own hand shapes mankind from the dust of the earth. He shapes an earthling from out of the earth. He then brings him to life by breathing into his nostrils, by breathing life into his nostrils, we read. And finally, he puts him to work, gives him a job to do, tend the garden. I think this should tell us something about how we are linked to the earth, to the very core of our being, at the very fiber of our being, by our very essence. Then God forms the creatures in exactly the same way, a hand molding the dust of of the earth before taking them all to the man to be named. I played uh, one of my favorite Jason Mraz tracks. Uh, man gave, gave names to all the animals. Uh, I think he stole it from Bob Dylan. Check out the song on Spotify. You'll like it. Man gave names to all the animals. Part of his job as the viceroy here on earth. Only Eve is different, by the way. She, of course, comes from out of Adam. But remember, he in turn was formed from the dust. So we are all ultimately from the dust of the earth. Now at this point, I think it is important to acknowledge a little bit of a danger uh, when it comes to talking about the environment. I think the danger is that we elevate creation even more highly than we should. Um, caring for creation has nothing to do with the deification of creation. We are not to worship creation. This is a subtle trap that many people have fallen into down through the millennia from the ancient pagan cultures that would worship the sun or the moon or the river god or the fertility god down to parts of the modern environmental movement that end up deifying the earth, the deification of, of Gaia or, or Mother Earth. Friends, we don't worship creation, we worship the creator. That's an important distinction. But of course, the other sinful extreme is that we simply use and abuse the earth in the here and now. We get whatever we can from it uh, for our own pleasure and enjoyment. Uh, this is the trap that some Christians have fallen into down through the years in the belief that, well, God's just going to trash the earth anyway, so what does it matter? I think there are a couple of problems with this understanding. Firstly, those passages that seem to suggest that God is going to destroy the earth, aren't a license to trash it. But secondly, I think it's a little bit misleading to think that way anyway. And passages like 2 Peter chapter 3 talk about the heavens and the earth being burned up. I don't necessarily think that they mean that they're going to be destroyed, that God's going to junk the universe and start again. Rather, we could read them as saying that God is going to cleanse them to purify them. Fire is in the scripture is always used as a purifying agent, as a cleansing agent. Like an Aussie bushfire cleans out the weeds and the rubbish and makes way for new growth and new life to emerge. Indeed, Romans chapter 8, verse 21 says, uh, creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay. That's interesting, isn't it? Far from being destroyed, it's going to be liberated from bondage and decay. 
going to be brought into freedom, is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Friend, God has an eternal purpose for the earth. He's not planning on throwing it away. God will one day restore creation, not just we humans, but all of creation, to being fully alive, fully in harmony with him. The book of Revelation, at the end point of history, calls of multinational choirs coming together to sing God's praises, of strange winged creatures joining in the song, of unpolluted rivers flowing through, the, flowing through a city, of lions and of, of lambs lying down together. We read elsewhere in Scripture, the child will play at the hole of the asp, the leopard and the kid living together. This is a picture of a very different world that we, we live in now, but it's something that we look forward to, a day when there'll be no more death, no more crying, no more pain. God has plans for this earth's renewal, so it matters how we treat it in the meantime. But you know what? I think the best argument isn't even the fact that God isn't necessarily going to trash the earth it's not even the best argument for why we should care for it. I think we should care for the environment because by caring for the planet, we care for people. We care for humans. We care about clean air and clean water because we love our neighbours. So we love our children and our grandchildren. We love all members of the human tribe. And we want what's best for them. We should be concerned with and working towards eliminating human suffering. We want clean water because we don't want people dying from dysentery. We want clean air because we don't want to be breathing in smog. The best argument, I think, for environmental concern is actually the love of people. If we mess up the earth and hurt the earth, we end up hurting ourselves. So I hope we can see that as humans called to rule over and to subdue the earth on God's behalf, um, we share the earth together with all of its inhabitants. Genesis tells us we share its origin. We know that we're going to share in its well-being or otherwise, and we share in its destiny as well. So with that in mind, I think all the many extinctions of our wonderful Aussie wildlife that we Aussies need to own, by the way, we have probably the worst track record in the world for mass extinctions. Um, my favorite Aussie native animal. Do you have a favorite native Aussie animal? I hope you do. Mine's the quoll. You know what a quoll is? Anyone know what a quoll is? Magnificent marsupial. It's a carnivorous possum like a native cat. Again, never seen one in the wild. Hope to do so one day. Where we go camping, um, I asked my cousin. He has a lot of bush on his property. And I asked my friend, have you ever seen a quoll, Mark? He goes, ah, oh, yeah, they're robbing things. They're camping out in the machinery shed. Why? You've got quolls. He didn't seem to think he wasn't too impressed, but I was mightily impressed that he hasn't just running around his property. But again, tragically, they are, they are under threat in Australia today. And for those of you who are environmentally minded, you might know the tragedy that is currently unfolding, the catastrophe that is currently unfolding in Tasmania, given that the red fox has finally found its way there. This is a catastrophe if it can get a foothold down there. 
We should grieve our native animals' loss. We share in the earth's sufferings. It's a blight on our record of our stewardship of, God, of, of God's earth on, on his behalf. In terms of what all this means for us day to day, week to week, how we should live, how we should invest, what public policies we should support, well, then it gets a little bit tricky, I think. I'm going to let you go away and do your own research and come to your own conclusions. I'm not going to tell you uh, what to think or who to vote for. But I, can I suggest, however, that choosing what policies to support and what lifestyle choices to personally make cannot always be as straightforward as they first appear. Can I suggest that just because something is presented to you as being green doesn't necessarily mean that it will be a net win for the earth when all the costs and benefits are taken into consideration. For example, as much as I like the idea of renewable energy, those wind turbines we see for bird fanciers such as myself are a disaster, particularly for our large birds of prey. They've used to be flying around the Aussie bush here and overseas, by the way, think there's nothing bigger out there that can strike them down until now. So it is always a question of, of, of trade-offs. Um, and as much as it pains me to see pictures of the Amazon rainforest burning up or the Indonesian rainforest, as a wealthy Aussie Westerner, I can't really bring myself to point the finger when these people are eking out a living trying to feed their family. These are complicated questions. Having a bunch of millionaire and billionaire celebrities fly to climate summits on their private jets and then lecture us about how we should be living doesn't particularly move me to action. I'd be keen to know your thoughts on that. I can send you a few links to a few articles if you want to know what has shaped my personal approach to how I can be a good steward of God's house here on earth. But in closing, I want to point to that wonderful, powerful um, passage from John chapter 1. John chapter 1 that I alluded to in week 1 of this series. It actually predates Genesis chapter 1 because it says, in the very beginning was the Word. There's that Greek word logos again. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the very beginning. John goes on. Uh, wow, look at that. I didn't even uh, tell Tina to put that up. She's very efficient. Uh, John goes on to say that the Word became flesh. This Logos, the Word became flesh. God's message to us, Jesus, he's talking about Jesus, became flesh. God put it on skin. Jesus is God in skin, the incarnation, carne, meaning, meaning flesh. But in this instance here, what I find interesting is that the Greek word for flesh in the original Greek of the New Testament, it's a sarx, S-A-R-X, in English, it doesn't just mean human flesh. It means all flesh. It would be used to describe animal flesh as well. So I think it's safe to assume that Jesus came for all flesh, not just we humans. And I think it makes sense when you think about it. The earth and all that is in it has been getting damaged ever since the fall, along with we humans. So I think it makes sense that Jesus came to reconcile all of creation back to God, back into a right relationship with God. Eco-theology reminds us that the earth is not 
ours at our disposal. We're not free to simply use it and abuse it, to wound it or to discard it. It tells us that as guests by God's invitation in God's house, whilst we have an honoured place as stewards, we need to be mindful that we share the earth with every other living creature. We should heed the call of God to earth's very first inhabitants to tend the garden into which we have been invited to tend it with the same intimate and loving care as its owner and maker. But to protect the earth against all that devours, discards, despoils and destroys. Creation praises God. We talked about how creation song sings in a choir to God. And when we sully it, we silence those voices. To harm the natural world is to disable its ability to praise and to reflect God. So the changes and alterations we make to the earth, and of course make them, we must, must be done with the utmost care and respect. A right understanding of environmentalism, I believe, focuses on cooperating with God in conserving and nurturing creation. Our job is, as far as we can, as best we can, is to pass on to the planet to the next generation of stewards and the next generation of stewards until that day when the Word, the Word made flesh, will come again and restore the natural order to its original pristine condition, and we need work the land no more. Amen? I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. This is a special prayer time this morning, focusing in on the need for creation care. I'm going to read through it nice and slowly. I invite you to concentrate on my words and to think for yourself, well, how well am I living up to this call to tend the garden into which I have been placed. Friends, let's offer to God uh, an, an eco prayer, a prayer of thanks, firstly, for his goodness in providing the bounty of the earth that nourishes us and sustains us, an acknowledgement that we've stuffed up, that we've fallen short, and a prayer of hopefulness for the future that one day all things will be put to right. Friends, let's pray. Creating and sustaining God, whose spirit moved over the face of the deep, bringing forth light and life, bringing forth order out of chaos. We come this morning in reverence for your mighty works, giving praise and thanks for the beauty of the earth and for the bounty of creation. You are the Lord of seed time and harvest. At your word, all living things were formed and set in motion. You bind the cosmos together and sustain us in your constant care. We are indeed grateful for the life-sustaining gifts we receive from your hand via the earth each and every day. We thank you for your gifts to us in nature. 
We thank you that you have made the earth to bring forth a great variety of food that sustains us. Indeed, we thank you for the very air that we breathe, for the energy of the sun, for the nutrients of the soil, and for all the wonderful processes which provide food and maintain life. We thank you for the steady reliability of the good earth, for its variety of seasons, and for both the contrast and unity of creation. And we are thankful that you call us to partner with you, the author and giver of all good things, intending the earth, working it, caring for it, to maintain and preserve it. We give you thanks this morning for our crops and flocks and herds. We thank you for the skills and technology you have allowed us to develop, to grow them and to bring them in. We give you thanks for all those who labor to ensure that the seed is scattered, that the crop is cultivated and that the harvest is gathered in. We pray that all the workers in all the fields of all the earth might know the dignity and worth of their labor. We pray that they might be rewarded fairly for their labor. We thank you for the harvest from the sea, and for the resources mined deep within the earth that provide each new generation with unprecedented levels of health and wealth and well-being. Help us to receive these gifts gratefully and help us to never take them for granted. But Father, we confess that millions of people have less than enough while others of us consume to excess. Food is wasted while millions starve. Nature's resources are misused to bring profit to a few. Forgive us, Lord, our selfishness. Open our hearts to the needs of the entire human family, wherever they may be. Forgive us our neglect of your creation, the choking waste of our pollution, the damage done by careless habits, and our indifference to future generations. Open the eyes of your people that your love might be reflected in our care for the planet. Turn us from careless tenants to faithful stewards and grateful guests in your house. May the wealth of the earth's resources not be squandered, but shared justly among all people. Help us to use them wisely and to share them unselfishly as good stewards of your earth. Grant us the grace to exercise wise stewardship of every part of the earth, every part of the earth, to tread lightly upon it, to cherish it, that our children and grandchildren may enjoy its riches throughout all generations. May there always be enough to supply all the needs of the human family until you come again and restore creation 
to its intended united glory. Through Jesus Christ we pray, who with you and the Holy Spirit are one God, with dominion over us and all of creation, now and forever. Amen.